Hello and welcome to RipperCast, your podcast on Jack the Ripper and the Whitechapel murders, as we bring you another guest speaker talk from the bi-monthly meetings of the Whitechapel Society, 1888. And what you're about to hear is the February 2019 event featuring Bob Hinton in conversation with Carl Kopak. Bob Hinton is the author of the 1998 book, From Hell, The Jack the Ripper Mystery one of the first books that focused on George Hutchinson as a Whitechapel murderer. And that suspect is the topic of the night's talk. So without further ado, let's venture into the Crutched Friar pub in the East End of London and listen to Carl Kopak and Bob Hinton. My name is Carl Kopak. I, I was the author two years ago of something called Ten Weeks of Whitechapel. Basically, the reason I'm here is because I'm fascinated by George Hutchinson. But before tonight, I've never met Bob. I've met Bob a whole hour ago. So I asked uh, a member of our uh, audience about a year ago, I won't mention who they are, um, about Bob. What, what, would I, like, what would I need to know about Bob? Because I'm interviewing him, it's nice to know who he is. He just put me um, onto this post in Casebook, which I think was 2007. This is a post, um, let me just read out for you. I remember attending a seminar once where the main message was, we can talk through our differences. After listening to the total rubbish the man was talking for about 30 minutes, I got up to leave. The speaker asked me why I was leaving, and I said, I said, well, he's talking rubbish. He then got very hot and bothered about this and started ranting and raving about me being a thug and not willing to try any other method. I said I'd only be too happy to give this method a tra- his method a chance, and challenged him to give the audience a chance to see his method in action. We agreed to hold a mini-seminar after the main one. I went home and prepared myself. Be very afraid, everyone. Later that night, I appeared on the stage with him, sitting across from him, sorry, sitting across from each other at a table. The scenario was where we were two protagonists, and he was about to show how to resolve the situation without using violence. The scene was set, and he started with, tell me, what do you think the main differences are between us? I said nothing. I merely stood up and pulled the pistol from my waistband and fired two 38 blanks in his direction. He fell on the floor moaning. Standing over him, I asked how well he thought his method of talking things through was going for him. I think he left the lecture circuit about two years ago. So my opening question tonight is a very, very important one before this. Bob gives his presentation. It's this. Bob, are you armed tonight? <laughs> <laughs> Not tonight. <laughs> there's, a, there's a volume. So that's the piece of debut we've got in this room tonight, then. There'll be no guns presented from the stage. Thank you. Um, this is a massive honour for me because I absolutely love his book. Um, so please welcome Bob Hinton. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, thank you ever so much for turning out in such lousy weather. Uh, you have to forgive me if I'm a bit slow tonight, but um, I've been on the road now since 6 o'clock in the morning, not on the railway. And at my age, we're going to be all afternoon and get to the bathroom, so... <laughs> the drama was over. The last scene had been played, and the cast were assembled on the stage to keep their final curtain. In the front row, where the leading lights of the show, her Majesty, Queen Victoria, Prince Albert, Inspector Abilene, 
Sir Charles Warren, all waiting to give their final bow. Behind them came a sporting cast, Druitt, Tumblepy, Pizer, and a thousand others. And right at the back were the stage fellas. Beauty, the chestnut seller, the newspaper boy. These were destined never to see the front row, never to bask in the limelight of fame. What's that? What's that? <laughs> Someone from the motley crew at the back is forcing his way to the front, pushing aside the leading man. He stands in the spotlight, arms akimbo like a really good knock out of the third. And in a voice that could only belong to a graduate of the Dick Van Dyke School of How to Speak the Cockney, he utters the immortal lines. Here, Governor, I saw something I did. I want to make a statement. Ladies and gentlemen, I give I say again. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, I give you George Hutchinson. George Hutchinson couldn't really be described as a minor character in our drama. Until that moment, no one had ever heard of him. His one appearance when he went Commercial Street Police Station at 6 p.m. in the evening of 12th November and asked me a statement about Mary Jane Kelly. And this is it. Yeah. Right, that is that statement. Well, I didn't realise we were going to do it in super alpha vision, so I could read it. However, I'm assuming all of you, or some of you, or somebody is fairly familiar with the statement and what it says. What I propose today, ladies and gentlemen, is that we all adopt the persona of an investigator par excellence. Erigible Sherlock Holmes, a poirot of the first order. Or whimsy, if you must. In other words, we're going to CSI the heck out of this bad boy. The first thing you must do, do is remember the creed of the investigator. The A, B, C. What? Accept nothing, believe no one, check everything. When a piece of evidence drops into your lap, you get all caught up in the content, first of all. And you forget to check the feasibility of it. For example, let's say I make a statement and say, this morning on leaving my hotel in Brooklyn, I noticed a green 7 Series BMW parked outside registration number P999PRU. That's my voice card. <laughs> 7 Series 4 Avenues. <laughs> Now, before you dash out checking the whereabouts of the same car, the first thing to do is to check whether I was actually staying in that hotel. If I'm not, then that should immediately ring an alarm bell. In other words, check to see if the statement is plausible. Now, looking at Hutchinson's statement, there should always be some warning lights flashing on and off. Put yourself in this position. He is walking up Commercial Road, going north. 
meets MJK going south. They exchange a few words and then carry on. Him going north, her going south. He then says a man traveling in the same direction as himself, north, stops Kelly going south and says something to her. How is that possible? Unless it arrives in the back of his head, or is walking backwards, how can he see what's happening behind him? Warning light number one. This shows you what's happening. You see the big arrow. Uh, I do apologise, I forgot my laser pointer, so I'm just going to sort of point threateningly at it, alright? A big arrow, that's, that's it, yeah. That's where he's going. Go up that road. Mary Kelly's going down it. And yet, he says, he saw Mary Kelly stop and have a chat with this bloke. How? This statement is all about what he saw. So the next thing you have to do is to find out whether or not it was possible for him to actually see these things. The event took place in the early hours of the morning. So what were the conditions like at that time? The streets at that time were lit by gas. Gas mantles, which improved the illumination, had been invented by 1888, but they were reserved for the posher parts because they were quite expensive and they required quite uh, a steady hand to light them. Anybody here ever had to light a gas mantle in a caravan usually or on a hurricane van? Worms if you touch them! They break, alright? So they were very expensive, very difficult to light, and therefore they weren't going to make this way to the poorer edges of the city. In Whitechapel, it was a simple gas flame, just like a large Bunsen burner. The amount of light that was given out depended on the quality of the gas and the cleanliness, uh, sorry, quality of the gas and the cleanliness of the glass surrounding the flame. <coughs> the lamps, and this is what people don't understand, were not made to illuminate the road or the pavement, but they simply acted as markers. So you've got a blotter like that, you've got a blotter like that, you've got a blotter like that, and you make your way from one to the other. Has anybody here got Netflix and saw the series Alienist? Right. That was filmed in Budapest, I think. And if you look at the gas lamps there, that's exactly how they were like. They were just a smudge, a smudge, a smudge. The idea was that they sort of marked out the route that you could take. Um, now, because people had to walk past these blodges of light, they became the, fam uh, the favourite plate for prostitutes to wait. Underneath the lamp, I told you by the barracks. <coughs> Lily Marlene was not standing there for health. That's where she picked up her customers. The lamps were placed at varying distances apart. There was usually one on a corner, and then about every 30 to 80 yards. Here is a photograph of a similar array of lights, which I took in Mexico a couple of years ago. Now these are only 10 yards of light, and the electricity, the illumination is 250 watt electric, oh, I was going to say, go, but 
Then you see what they do. They don't spread the light around, they just give you a mark. Now, you see the furnace light? There are actually three people underneath that. They're waiting for some more people to come out. So that's what you ask. Now, we're very lucky that in the records, we actually have an inspection report on the state of the lamps in Whitechapel, very close to the relevant time. Can you read that? No. Okay. On the 26th of November, 1888, the Lamps Committee militated. The chairman suggested the importance of an inspection of the lighting of the whole district, and after consideration it was resolved that arrangement be made to ascertain the condition of the lighting of the district by actual inspection of several streets of the district. In other words, we're not going to distribution washing them, we're going to go out there and have a look. After the first inspection, carry out the 3rd of December, this is not long after Mary Kelly, a communication be addressed to the commercial gas company complaining of the dirty state of the lamps generally throughout the district and the defective condition of the burners and broken glass in lanterns. In other words, what lamps were there were pretty bloody useless. And we don't have to accept this as a theory. We've got the actual report. It's in the archives. Round about the time that Mary Kelly was murdered. This is what we love. Actual proof. Oh, geez. Okay, let's have a look at Moonlight. Was it possible to see all these details by moonlight? Point to number nine. There you go. <laughs> <coughs> number nine is very close to a new moon. In other words, there's hardly anything there. A very, very thin sliver. And six day moon. That's what it was like on the 9th of November when the murder was committed. When, according to Hutchinson, we saw all these wonderful things. That's the moonlight. The weather was awful, the street lighting next to useless, so the chance we actually see anything was remote. And this is overlooking the fact that there would be other people between him and Mary Kelly and Mr. A. Now the statement takes a strange turn as G.H. now admits he's totally watching. Why? We don't know. He positions himself outside Queen's Head Club. Waits for the couple to walk by. I don't know if you've seen the actual statement he wrote, but he mentioned another pub first of all, and then that was crossed out, and Queen's Head was inserted on top of it. Now, when they draw abreast, he stoops down. Have a good look at the man's face. First of all, it would be a complete waste of time. The light on the Queen's head was higher up on the wall. The man wore a wide brimmed hat, therefore, his face would be in complete shadow. Secondly, it just wouldn't work. Sorry, I missed that one. 
this was the weather conditions in case you think that uh, you worry about starlight and anything else. Overcast, rain or light, cold, minimum temperature, three degrees. No good. So there's no illumination, lamps were dirty, there was no moon, and there sure as hell weren't any starlight. And these are all factual records. You can't change that, that's the truth. And again, this is George Hutchinson looking at Mary Kelly and the strange man. Now, he makes, G.H. makes a big thing of a man having a small parcel in his left hand. And his right arm around Mary's shoulder. If they're walking north, that means Mary Kelly is closest to the wall and the man is closest to the road. Which means if he wants to stoop down and see the man, he's actually got to stop them from physically walking. He's got to walk in front of Mary, they've got to stop, but he's got to stoop down and look under this thing at a face that's in complete shadow. And he asks us to believe that in this fraction of a second, his peripheral vision was good enough not only to see the man's eyelashes, but also his boots. And the actual colour of the buttons on his boots. I tried this several times getting various people up and I hung pieces of Lego off of the various places. Starting down the knees, up there, up there, up there, up there. And I asked them to stare straight through my eyes. And then I asked them what colour the Lego was. I couldn't even see it. Because if you're that close to someone, you're staring them in the face, you can't see anything else. You sure as hell can't see the bloke who's got four button boots on. It doesn't work. Now, the next part of his statement is he follows him in to Dorset Street, where for some obscure reason, instead of going straight into Mary Kelly's room, they both hang about outside, laughing to each other. I mean, ask yourself, is that likely? It's raining, it's miserable, it's three degrees, today, <coughs> degrees. There's no moon left. There's no star. The most unromantic spot on the earth, apart from probably Vesuvius. And they're standing in the middle of this road, having a natter. And she's nattering about handkerchiefs. Now, Hutchinson to actually hear what they were talking to each other must be standing right over their shoulder. He also mentions that they have. Mary Kelly said, I haven't got a handkerchief, and the bloke gave her a red one. That's rubbish. I spent a long time in the forces, and I, after I was a city, I made a lot of military equipment, and you learn about things like camouflage. And the funny thing you learn is, very, very quickly, that when it's dark, colours don't look like colours. If it's a dark colour, it looks black. If it's a light colour, it looks grey. So it could be grey, or green, or pink, it doesn't matter, it all looks grey. And if it's dark, like brown, or dark blue, or black, it all looks black. So a red handkerchief would have no colour signature. Funnily enough, the best nighttime camouflage is actually blue. So, 
Erastinus, uh, he stands there watching this couple, having a natter about God knows what, handkerchiefs, instead of getting themselves into her room. Hutchinson's statement fails on all counts. There, can anyone read that? Hutchinson walking north could not have seen what was happening behind him. The lack of illumination of other people would have made it impossible for him to see more than a very few feet. He would not be able to hear what was said at that distance. He would not have been able to stoop down as he claimed. It is impossible to see so much in such a short glance. He would not have been close enough in Dorset Street to hear the conversation. He would not have been able to tell what colour the handkerchief was. Why do you think that he inserted that bit about the red handkerchief? Anybody? Because if you go back all the previous witness statements, quite a few of them mention a red handkerchief. And they also mention a parcel that this bloke is supposed to carry. And Hutchinson has inserted the parcel and the red handkerchief into his thing to make it. <laughs> implausible. These are the reasons it's implausible. The weather was close to freezing and it was raining. A miserable night. No one with such a warm overcoat would leave it open to the elements, displaying not only his jacket but his waistcoat as well. Don't forget it. He told us he could see the watch chain on the man's waistcoat. Yes. No one with such obvious wealth would leave it so openly on display in such a dangerous area. I mean, all he's missing there is a large sign above his head saying, smack me over the end, because watch. The red handkerchief from the small parcel, part of the statements, echo other statements made by previous witnesses about earlier murders. Why would anyone wearing such an overcoat carry a small parcel? He just put it in his pocket. The whole description is far too theatrical. <coughs> And when I say that, theatrical, I mean that absolutely accurately. Because if you read the description of the man, something jumped out at me, and I immediately realised what it was. It was a tailor's dummy. The whole thing was theatrical. It was a tailor's dummy. He mentions a man wears spats. Well, spats are morning wear. Wear them before lunch and after breakfast. Wouldn't wear them at night. And it's very interesting that he gets the description of the clothing and the buttons and all the rest of it. And that remains constant. Because I believe got that from the tailor's dummy he was looking out the window and whether he saw himself dressed up like that I don't know. The parts of the statement that changes are the parts he had to invent, which is the features of the man. One minute he's got dark eyebrows, next statement he's got light eyebrows. One minute he's got bushy eyebrows, next minute he's got... If you read the statement over and then pick out those bits, you'll see that. So. Very important question you must ask yourself if you want to get to the bottom of this. Where is he going? 
He bought past his lodgings, which were shut down. Oh, according to him, he had no more money for any more lodgings. Yet he was going somewhere for a reason that was so important. It was worth him staying up on a dreadful night that, walking the streets in the freezing rain. Yet seems he meets Mary Kelly, whatever that reason was, disappears, evaporates. He abandons his original journey and goes to Minnesota <coughs> instead. This makes no sense at all unless Minna's court is where he was headed for. Then it all makes perfect sense. If he's going to Minna's court to see Mary Kelly and she walks past him down the road, then what's the point in carrying on because she's not there? Slide. Where is he going? Another important question is, why did it take so long to come forward? Murder happened on the 9th. He don't come forward on the 9th, though there are several witnesses on that day who came forward, spoke to the police and made statements. We know that because they're there, they're there in the records. He didn't go on the 10th. He didn't go on the 11th. Oh, sorry. Uh, he didn't go on the 10th. He didn't go on the 9th. He didn't go on the 10th. He didn't go on the 11th. He went on the 12th. Now, he went on the 12th, but he didn't do it in the morning. He didn't do it in the afternoon. He didn't leave it. Why? What happened? Now, there are only two reasons that people do things. One, they want to do them, or two, they've been forced to do them. According to the Hutchinson, these events took place in the morning of the 9th of November. Yet the first anyone knows is when he turns at the police station at 6 o'clock on that evening. What happened to him to force him to come forward and make that statement? The only thing that happened between the murder and him walking to the cop shop, which had any bearing on the case at all, was the inquest of Mary Kelly. And at that inquest, a witness, Sarah Lewis, came forward and said she saw a man waiting across the entrance to Miller's Court, waiting at the road just across there, where they have the lodging house. Now I thought at the time, but surely if that was George Hutchinson, she would have known George Hutchinson. But then of course it transpired Cyrus didn't actually live there. She lived several miles away, she was just spending the night. But Hutchinson knew that he'd been spotted. And just think about this for a moment, because that means Hutchinson is just about the only suspect who was there at the time, at the place, and in the very, very close vicinity to one of the murders. 
Now he can do one of two things. He can either say, oh, stop this. I'm not going to do anything. Or he can go to the police, give his own version of why he was waiting there. And I think that is the choice he made. And to some people, that might seem like a dangerous thing to do. There is precedent for killers actually doing that, inserting themselves into the investigation. Now, I do hope that by looking at the statement in closer detail, you'll now start to look at it and pick holes in it, pick your own holes in it. It was also held to be totally unreliable because only a few short weeks later, remember what Sir Robert Anderson and McNaughton both said. Sir Robert Anderson, I will only add that the only person who ever had a good view of the murderer, McNaughton, no one ever saw the Whitechapel murder, unless it was possible to sit in police Now, people have looked through those statements for ages and said, ah, who is it they're talking about? Who was the police? Was it Melinda? Was it just... That's irrelevant. We're not looking at the names. We're not looking at the quality. We're looking at the quantity. They said, nobody, except perhaps the city PC. That's fine, isn't it? The other one was a Jew. So that wasn't Hutchinson. So by that time, only a few short weeks later, this fantastically detailed statement by George Hutchinson had been dismissed as a falsification. So if we can file the statement that's appending, what about the man who made it? Who was George Hutchinson? Where did he come from? Well, in my book, I've identified him as being born in Shadwell in December 1859. Now Shadwell, he was, uh, the lane he was born in was King David's Lane. And across the top of King David's Lane, runs the Ratcliffe Highway. And who was supposed to have spent some time at the Ratcliffe Oak Highway in the house of Mrs. Bukey? <laughs> Later on, I came to doubt my choice and posted on the casebook site that although I was sure GH was killer, I was not sure I had the right one. I based this on the fact that I compared his signature <laughs> on his entry in the manager records and his signature on the state we could not find any similarities. Unfortunately, due to personal circumstances, my house falls fell down, uh, it was months before I could get my records out again and start looking at it. What I find out then when I started my investigation then, is that now we have not one, but three signatures that George Hutchinson to compare. There they are. Those are the statement ones. That's the one on his marriage certificate, and that's the one on his 1911 census. Now, bearing in mind that in 1911 he was a good bit older than he was in uh, 1888, I don't think it's too much of a stretch to say there are very interesting similarities there in those statements. However, let us start at the beginning. 
Our story starts in Yorkshire, where two cousins, Joseph and John Hutchinson, took up two sisters, Anna and Sarah Madison. Leaving Yorkshire, they all travelled to London where they married. Joseph married Hannah. Must have been a bit of a shock to many. They were married in July and their first child was born the same year. Joseph carried on business as a licensed fitter and he ran the Crooked Billet Club in King Dave Lane. And it's here on the 10th of December 1859 that George was born. Over the years, the family moved around the area, but always with Joseph running coffee shops or pubs, and always with all his family working with him. This changed in 1876, when Hannah, his wife, and George's mother, died of cancer of the womb. George was just 16. The doctor who signed the death certificate was W.B. Lionel Ferguson, <coughs> just happened to be a surgeon to the Queen. Oh, stop it! You can't get conspiracies every time you don't run. <coughs> in 1881, we find that George has left the family circle and is now working as a barman in the John of Jerusalem club in Carpenwell. The next event in George's life is 1887, when he marries a 41 your old widow by the name of Warpath, who was 14 years his senior, according to Marister's book. Mrs. Walker was an interesting life. Her maiden name was Mann, N-A-W-N, and her father, Henry Mann, was a cab driver and coach proprietor. The first thing that we can notice about her is that she gave the wrong age. She was not 41, as she claimed. She was, in fact, 50. She was born in Malibor in 1837. Sometime between 1851 and 1859, she'd taken up with a man named John Walker, by whom she had a child, Henry. She had another child, George, and then they decided it was time they got married. They published the bands, July the 3rd, July the 10th, July the 17th, but apparently then they called the whole thing off because there's no record of them getting married. In 1861, she's shown as living with her two children and her brothers and sisters, the assumption being that her parents are dead. No occupation is shown. In 1871, she's shown living with her two children with her occupation given as dressmaker. In 1881, she's living alone with her occupation as needlework. Now, in Victorian times, when a lady described herself as dressmaker and needleworker or laundress, often that was a euphemism for prostitute. And it does not take a long stretch of imagination to see this poor woman completely on her own, taking to the streets to survive. In December 1887, she tells a little white lie about her age and marries G.H. And it's interesting to note that somewhere along the line she changed her Christian names. The marriage certificate reads Mary Jane Walker. 
that. Who else do we know? Mary Jane. Think about that, think about that. It's interesting to note that there are no witnesses from either her family or Jesus' family at the wedding. The witnesses are James and Susan Calvert. James is a cab driver and groom. There's a possibility that during this period, George Hutchinson was also finding work as a groom, since his wife's family were quite into that side of things. Funny enough, they completely disappear in the 1891 census. Nothing at all. There is a couple, George Hutchinson and his wife Mary, but the ages are completely wrong. So I can't establish those at all. In 1892, Joseph Hutchinson, George's father, dies. His will is dated 1891, and he leaves his entire estate to his son, James Francis Hutchinson, who he also appoints a substitute, executor, sorry, not executor. This is rather strange as there's absolutely no mention of George Hutchinson in the will whatsoever. Had he done something which might have ruffled the family feathers, not coming to his wedding, cutting out of the will, only we could think the next time we hear of GH is in the 1901 census, his occupation was given as insurance collector. And before people say, but insurance collectors don't murder somebody, yeah, we look at the sevens, and look at Herbert Wallace. I'm not saying he did it, but his wife ended up very, very badly after. He's still living with his wife, Mary Jane Hutchinson. On the 11th of January, 1904, Mary Jane dies of a blood disorder. Her age is still given as 60, in fact, she's 69. Eight months later, George marries again, this time to Sarah Ann Hopton from Wales. But at this wedding, George's brother, James Francis, appears as a witness. So apparently, this is a wedding that the family is happy with. The 1911 census shows he's still married, but without any living children. And it's noticeable that George Hutchinson had no children at all from either marriage. For years, this is where the trail ended. I couldn't find any more information about it. However, over the last few weeks, I have finally found the missing pieces to the Hutchinson puzzle. In 1932, Hutchinson and his wife leave London for good. Where did he go? Now, bear in mind he could have set up a home anywhere in the United Kingdom. He could have even moved abroad. Lots of English people were making the trip over to Calais and Dieppe and all that. He could have anywhere. Just that new town. Where has he moved? Anybody want to take a guess where he moved? The 
not Bodner, anybody? He moves to Marvin. Now, where have you heard that name before? Oh, yes. Isn't that the place Mary Kelly lived after leaving Ireland? In Carmarthen, where her father was a ganger in the local tin works, which are situated in Kidmouth. And he lives out his life in a semi detached house on the outskirts of the town until his death in 1948. Now, to people who keep saying, why do you bother to do that it's so long ago? He died two years before I was born. History gets very, very compressed. Right. His wife dies two years later. It's not headstone, just a simple urn reading G. Hutchinson from Abbot Willie Neighbours. This is the notice in the book, uh, sorry, in the local paper. A native of London, he had lived in Carmarthen for 16 years since his retirement from his house in the Little Bit. So this is the George Hutchinson, there's no doubt about it, and his wife's name is his. And that's the only thing, and again, Hutchinson from his neighbours Abbey. Can this unprepossessing grave hold the remains of Jack the Ripper? I believe it does. Thank you for your very kind attention. Welcome back, and uh, thanks again to Bob for his fantastic presentation. Um, what's going to happen now is I'm going to ask Bob some questions. Um, and then I'm going to go around the audience and ask if anyone's got questions because I think we all have some after that presentation. So, Bob, um, the reason I am fascinated with Hutchison is because of three, it could be three things. He's either the greatest witness to the greatest unsolved crime in British history, he's either the biggest liar in the greatest unsolved case in British history, or he is the murderer in the greatest case in British history. But what I want to know, more than anything else, I'm fascinated by, in particular, he gives his statement to Edward Badham uh, on, the, on the 12th of November. He goes, I don't know, I've seen people know this, Abilene goes round with him trying to find the Astrakhan man. Or, or, or at least some of his policemen do. He's accompanied by two of them. Abilene says, he's, he's incredible. He's a credible witness. He's happy with this. And then never mentions him again, ever. I find that really, really mysterious. And of course, at the trial of um, Severin Klozowski, um, there's the alleged, you know, you've got Jack the Ripper at last. I know that's, he didn't actually mean it like that. He actually he put a, yeah, it's a joke, yeah. But um, he never mentions Hutchison, and Hutchison is the greatest witness in the case. What's going on there, then? Are we still live on this one? Yeah, we're good then. Oh, God, sorry. Um, okay. You must put yourself in Abilene's shoes. Hearing this right load of codswallop, um, 
he knows that it's a complete load of nonsense. Now, I've asked detectives who have spent their entire life taking statements, following up suspects through descriptions, and I've shown them this statement without telling them who it was or what it's concerned with. And apart from sort of laughing themselves silly and falling on the floor, they've all said, no, this is absolutely right, complete rubbish. They said, if you examine eyewitness statements, you will find that they usually get the sex of the person right. They will then, the next accurate thing they get is their height because they tend to use their height as a reference to themselves. He said, but after that, forget it. <laughs> you know, they, they just don't, not a hope. And there's a very good uh, book by the Oxford University Press called Eyewitness <coughs> Testimony, written by barristers who examine this very situation, eyewitness testimony, and it's absolutely frightening. You know, people... They do tests like they send out a car um, with six people in it and they jump out and pretend to sort of have a fight in the middle of the thing. And then they swoop in and they isolate the witnesses and they all come up with them entirely, you know, one says it's a car, one says it's a lorry, one says it's six people, the other says it's two people. You know, forget it, they haven't got to open hell. So, Abilene is faced with a problem. He can do one of two things. He can either turn around to Hutchinson and say, okay, sunshine, what's this load of crap? In which case, Hutchinson can actually turn around and say, your battery's low. (laughs) 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 Um, Okay, prove it and walk away. Or he can lull him to a false sense of security and pretend to go along with him. Now, I've heard people say, well, that's ridiculous, he wouldn't do that. But it did do it. There was a case in America in the early 70s where women on their own um, were being murdered at times in the afternoon when they were home alone. And the police had absolutely no leads, nothing. And then one day they got a lead from a bloke who was doing some work in the street And he said he saw a panel van parked a block away and there was a chap in it and it appeared he was waiting or doing something like that. He described the panel van and it wasn't too long before the police thought that this was a very good lead. Lo and behold, a man comes to the police station because they advertise this, we've got a lead, and uh, comes to the police station and says... Oh, that's my panel van. I was just simply there um, to keep an eye on such and such and such. I was doing some work on this, that, and the other. But I did see another vehicle speed away just after the murder was committed. And the police officer, the lieutenant, said, um, Oh, really? Now, he then realizes, of course, it's a load of rubbish because if he saw a car speed away from the murder site just after the murder. Why didn't he come forward and say that? Why did he wait until he'd been identified in the press? And then, So the lieutenant then, I call him Abilene 2, 
he thinks, right, we'll play. And he goes to this bloke and says, well, this is fantastic. You know, you're the only bloke to give us a clue. Will you help us? Oh, yeah, he said. And he sent this guy out in squad cars, and they were going all over the place, you know. And he was coming back, and he was saying, uh, can you show me exactly where in your van you were sitting when you saw him? And the bloke said, yeah, okay, you know, I was sitting here. And the policeman said, oh, um, in case you picked up any clues, can we do a sweep of your van to make sure there's no forensics there you might have picked up from this bloke? You know, yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, right. <laughs> and then he arrested him. And, yeah, of course, he was the murderer. But, you see, he was placed in a position that he'd been spotted, he'd know he'd been spotted, and he decided to brazen it out. Now, this is not quite as silly as you may believe. Uh, people here heard of um, Bill Hagmar, uh, William Hagmar, Bill Hagmar? Yeah. Yeah, you're good, Bill. You were at Coke and Dagger Club when he came. He was the head of the FBI... Um, yeah, serial killer and child abduction unit. He was the head honcher. And I was talking to him about, um, you know, witnesses and how they get on. And he was saying, you know, there are sometimes you know that someone's guilty and you just can't pen it. And you've got to sort of play it either by ear or, you know, let it run. And I think that's what Abilene was doing. Because there's something very interesting happening. Adeline said, I believe this man. Okay? That's what he said publicly. Now, don't forget, Monroe was just taking over from Warren. And I think Adeline, who knew Warren and uh, Monroe and trusted Monroe, contacted him and said, Look, I don't want to get your hopes up, chum. But I think I'm on to something. Now, we've all heard of G.R. Sims. G.R. Sims, this reporter, was very, very interested in the case, went to interview Monroe on his takeover. And he put a piece in the paper and he said, it would be a wonderful achievement if this new commissioner was to announce the arrest of the Whitechapel murderer. And for private information I have, I believe this to be the case. And I think Munro told Sims, I can't give you any details, but watch this space. Unfortunately, Hutchinson didn't kill again, and he just faded away. But in case you're thinking that's a dark thing, it does happen. They insert themselves serial killers do often insert themselves into the investigation. Look how many times it happened. Okay, has that been sufficient? There's also the, is it the Green, um, Green River um, killer. Yeah. He, he did the same thing. He, he basically inserted himself. Yeah. Ian Huntley is another one. Obviously, he was on national TV. BTK. BTK, yeah. BTK basically went to the press and said, is it okay? Will you catch me if I send you this file? <laughs> Nothing suspicious there whatsoever. <laughs> Let's look away from that. Um, what I really like, another thing I like about the George Hutchison case is just, it's the tiniest thing. So, Sarah Lewis, she doesn't give evidence. We're not here talking about it tonight. Sarah Lewis basically created George Hutchison because she basically just brought him along. So, what I don't understand about Hutchison's statement is he's walking along, just gone past Thrall Street, and he says, 
he basically says, I'm worried about Mary Kelly. I've known her for a few years. No evidence of that whatsoever. Um, I gave her a few shilling. That's incredibly generous. Um, I'm worried about her. He does whatever he does for the rest of the night in his own version of that story. And then he's back at 34 Commercial Street. She's killed horrifically. It takes him three days to go to the papers. Until Sarah Lewis stands up and says, I saw somebody... What's he doing on the 9th and 10th of November? That's what, that's what I'd like to know. On the... Well, that, we know what he's doing on the 9th of November. <laughs> if he's the killer, we've got a rough idea. Yeah. I think he's laying low. He's just lying low. Um, he's got away with it. He's got away with it. I mean, let's face it. The top detective has said, I believe this man. Yeah. Buy him a pint. I've got police officers coming out with me. Double buy me a pint. I mean, that night, he was supposed to have been coming back from Romford. That's what he said. Well, George Hutchinson, this one, had a sister who was born in Romford. So there's a connection with my George Hutchinson in Romford. I also find it's really weird these coincidences keep popping up. His wife-to-be changed her name to Mary Jane. They went and lived in Carmarthen. I mean, why Carmarthen? All these places are links to Mary Kelly. But, no, I think he was just living the high life. And he just... He achieved what he wanted to do. It was a complete obliteration of Mary Kelly. I believe he was stalking her for some time. Don't forget, she said, when Barnett was, when Barnett was questioned, he said she was afraid of somebody, but not necessarily <coughs> the Ripper. She was afraid of someone. And I think the person she was afraid of was George Hutchinson. She never thought he was a murderer... But he was just always hanging around. Kate Eddowes. I think she was murdered because she was blackmailing him. I don't, I don't think she said, I know who Jack the Ripper is. But she suddenly realised that everywhere the killer struck, George Hutchinson had been in the vicinity. And I think she was blackmailing him. That's why she made such a fuss about getting out of the prison cell. I don't know if any of you have ever been in the position where you get drunk and you spend the night in the police cell. Okay. <laughs> but being ex-Navy in Portsmouth, it was quite well known that if you'd had too much to drink and you went along to the police, they locked you up. Um, not as a punishment, but to stop you going on board drunk and getting in real trouble. And then you spent your night there, got your head down, uh, the, <coughs> gave you breakfast in the morning, you went back on board, sober. All right? What I'm saying is, when drunks got drunk, in those days especially, especially in the weather and the awful bloody... Ugh, a police cell, you hit the jackpot. You had a nice warm police cell, you could stay there for the rest of the night. Don't forget, <laughs> Catherine Edo's husband, whatever you want to call her, said exactly the same thing. I heard she'd been arrested and I knew she was all right. But she insisted on getting out. Why? Because she was going to meet the killer. And she was blackmailing him. And in case you think that never happens, there was a case in America where a man did blackmail this pair of serial killers and they found his head. <laughs> Thank you very much. I've got two more questions before I throw open to the floor, because I know people are quite keen to, uh, um, to ask questions. Um, you mentioned stalkers. And um, if he's married a woman, changed their name to Mary Jane um, uh, and things like that. He's clearly seen Hitchcock's Vertigo. 
He's obviously seen the film. He knows exactly what to do about that. He's changed everything for her. Um, bearing in mind that, that the Whitechapel murders, H Division struggle because it's, the, it's an unusual type of killing for them. We were talking before, we said most murders are obviously either domestic or why did you kill that person because I needed money or she said this or that and it's, it's easy to link the two. So serial killers, unorganised, just kill on random. But this makes it more interesting because if Hutchison is the killer, I, he, he can't be, I was going to say, he's not the first stalker killer but would it be the first most famous stalker killer if he's the killer? Um, well, I think you've absolutely hit the nail on the head that this was uh, a complete one-off. It was not something that somebody had come across before, especially the police. There are several reasons for committing murder. Um, love, hate, jealousy, gain... Or sex, and that's basically it. That's your five, your famous five. And if you're working in a situation like the Victorian police were, where the only clues, the only help you had was from either people talking, or in that famous case where they found that cold chisel with the name Rock on it, and they found out it belonged to Oruk. Uh, unless you found that, you really didn't have anywhere to go. So we don't know how many people killed somebody and it never got connected to anything. Don't forget, we're talking about... If you look at Victorian times, I mean, or even up to the 1920s, you could disappear from, say, Swansea. And you might never be found. Look at Mamie Stewart, disappeared in 1919. Her remains weren't found until 1963. Now, how many more people have that happened to and the remains were never found? Don't forget, 100,000 people a year go missing in Britain. How many of these are victims of serial killers? We just don't know. And you can imagine the situation in America is 20 times worse. Then you've got a population of 250 million. Thank you very much. This is my final question before I throw it open. Um, forget the Astrakhan man. This is George walking down Commercial Street. He says Mary Kelly. He's going to Miller's Court. He's going to do that. Uh, he makes up this preposterous story about a man dressed as a vampire walking through a council estate, as it seems to me. Um, he does all that. How does he get into a room? This may take a while, everyone. <laughs> well, yeah, I'm afraid it is going to take a few minutes. Is anybody in here tearing her to go away? No? Okay. I'll zip through. You must understand how people secured their doors in those days. And there were three main ways to do it. One was what we call a tower bolt, which is just the ordinary slidey bolt, which we're all familiar with. Um, that's a rod of, rod of metal in a tube which fits into a receiver and door frame. Right. Uh, advantage is it's very, very simple. It's very, very cheap. Disadvantage is you can only operate it from the side of the door that it's fixed. It doesn't require a key. 
So therefore, since Mary Kelly's lock did require a key, throw that away. The next one is what I call a warded lock. Now, a warded lock is the bolt, that's the thing that prevents the door from moving back and forward, uh, has several notches in it. And inside the lock, you've got several levers which are mounted on springs. And these springs spring up, engage with the notches, and stop the bolt from moving, left or right. That only opens, you can only move that bolt when you stick a key in, which has the correct notches cut into the key, which will lift all the levers, and then the bolt can move back or forward. Relatively cheap, you need a key to do it. That's to open it or to lock it, you need a key. The third one is... In 1863, Linus Yale, an American, invented the Yale cylinder lock. The difference with this was that the bolt, which stopped the door from opening or closing, was spring-loaded. I'm sure most of you here are familiar with the Yale lock or a derivative. Now, the advantage of a spring-loaded bolt is that you can just pull the door to, the bolt will shoot home, and it's locked. In other words, you don't need a key to lock it. And if you're on the inside of the door and can twist the knob, you don't need a key to unlock it. Or if you have access to the inside, such as putting your arm through a broken window. However, the problem with that was Yale locks were very highly engineered and they cost 18 and sixpence each which was a lot of money. You ain't going to find that on a room occupied by a lady of the night. But for the past hundred years, they had a similar lock, which was called a night latch. It was similar in that the bolt was spring-loaded. And you could open that with the key, you didn't need a key to lock it, and if you could reach in, you could push the knob back. Last slide, last slide. You could push the knob back and pull back the bolt by reaching in through a window. Now, when I first started looking at this, that's one of the questions that struck me. How do you get in? So I contacted a firm Whoa. I contacted a firm in Newark who specialise in antique locks. And I gave him the problem, and he said, ah, he said, what you're talking about is a night latch. And he sold me one, and here it is. Now, you see this arrow here, the top photograph on the left, that one, that draws back the bolt. So if you're inside the house, you shut your door. To open the door, you just slide that across, and it opens. From the outside, it looks like an ordinary lock. Can you see that? Now, here's an interesting thing. If you pull the bolt back and then operate that little slider, it will lock the bolt back. Now, I can remember my mother, and I'm sure you can remember doing it yourself, we used to call that leaving it on the latch. 
So if you were going out for five minutes and you couldn't be bothered to take a key with you to open the door, you left it on the latch. And otherwise, you just stuck it on the latch and went out. When you came back, just pushed the door open. That is what I believe Mary Kelly did. Now, it's all right saying, I believe it, but do you have any evidence? Yes, I do. Remember the witness who followed Mary Kelly and blotty-faced man down the passage? Read her statement. She said they got to the door and they went in. She didn't say Mary Kelly went around the corner, clambered up the drain pipe, hung off the sill, put her arms on the thing, slid back the pole, and then went in. She just said they went in. Mary Kelly left it on the latch. You say, wow, but she had nothing to steal. Look at the, um, the lady who lived above Mary Kelly. Look at her statement. She said when she went in, what was the first thing she did? She pushed a door, uh, the table against the door to jam it. No locks. Okay. Mary Kelly left it on the latch. Okay. And this is what happened, I believe. And it fits. She had finished with Carity Moustache Man. She was voluntarily drunk. She was going to go out and find another customer. She left it on the latch. She went out. Met the bloke, this bloke, whoever he was, down the street, which George Hutchinson seen. Obviously, he wasn't an Ashkan man. He was just an ordinary punter. Went back to Mary Kelly's place. Mary Kelly, undressed, folded her, chairs over, uh, her clothes over the chair. They hopped into bed. They did the business. Mary Kelly, don't forget, she'd been up all day. She was half pissed, if not totally pissed. She was very tired, exhausted. So when the bloke had finished, he just got up and he walked out. But what he forgot to do was to remove the snib. And he'd left the door still on the latch. So when the killer came knocking, the door was still open. And that's what the lock is. Any questions on that one? Over to you. Well, thank you very much. I'm, I'm done as regards my questions. Um, I'd like to open it to the floor. If anyone's got any questions, can you raise your hands, please? Yep, yes. Okay. Yep, I've got a microphone right here. With regards to him living in Carmarthen, did you check the 1939 register? Because that would have had his date of birth, so that would have been matched. You could match that with his birth certificate. Uh, the 1939 what, sorry? Register. What register? It's a 1939 register. It's been out for the last few years. Oh. No, the register which started the NHS. Yeah. Yeah, I've got him on the. I've got him on the 19. Uh, I think it's 39 register. I can't think of that. I've got him there um, as George Hutchinson with his wife, excellent and clean. Yeah, but did it? The date of birth match. The birth I haven't. I uh, didn't see there was a date of birth on there it. There is so. a date of birth. Is it? I'll have to check it. But you know. Yep. Okay. Any more? Okay, one at the back here. Hello. Yes. This is this is working. Yeah. The Abilene's uh, remark, where he said he interrogated um, Hutchinson and believed him, wasn't that just in an internal police document? I have no idea, but he would have had to have made um, he would have had to have made a report to his superior officer. So why, if it was in an internal police document saying he believed him, 
why would he lie if he didn't believe him in an internal police document? Oh, blimey. <laughs> yeah. Um, the problem with internal police documents and the problem with the police force at the time, uh, not to besmirch the name of police officers, but quite honestly, um, the reporters knew that if you tipped them a shilling, they'd give you anything you wanted, basically. Don't forget, the, the whole case leaked like a sieve. They were trying to keep Schwartz under wraps, and it was all over the papers the next day. Okay, any more questions? Yeah, we have go on. That wasn't leaked, though. The fact that Eberline said he interrogated him and um, uh, believed him, that wasn't actually leaked. In no, no, ways. but what I'm saying is he couldn't take the risk, could he? All right, then, can I just ask another one? Yes, yeah, sir. <laughs> Um, he married in the, your your um, yeah. the person you identify as Hutchinson married a, a year or so, just over a year before the murder started. Yeah. So what was he doing, living on his own in the uh, Victoria home? Well, when the, he continued with his same wife afterwards. Well, that's the point. We don't know whether he continued the same life afterwards because in the eighteen ninety one census um, they don't appear at all. We've got no idea where they were for that census. Unfortunately, I've looked everywhere. I found a couple, but they're completely the wrong details. Wasn't he with her in 1901? 1901 he was, yes. So, so you're presuming that he split up for a little bit in between? No, you don't have to split up. I mean, he could have said he was working away. He could have said he got a job somewhere else. A lot of things. You see, he didn't have any, he didn't have any stable employment at the time. Hi, Bob. Hi. Um, I've got a question that's not really relevant to the case, but something you mentioned. Mm -hmm. uh, needle workers and tailors being um, a euphemism for yeah. prostitution. Can I ask where you get that information from, please? Um. <laughs> um. It's um, sort of general, oblique, common knowledge that certain people put them down, themselves down as needle workers. So? Seamstress. Seamstress, isn't it? Seamstress, yeah. That's what I'm doing. Yeah. Bob, um, what's your take on the recent suggestions flying around on the internet? that there was no George Hutchinson? No, there is one. I've got everything you have. I've got his entire file in my pocket. No, but there are, there are theories flying around the internet that George Hutchinson didn't actually exist. Yeah. What's your take on that? Well, we know he did exist. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah. I, I must admit I haven't. <laughs> No. Oh yeah, you get these you get these crazy ones who keep coming up about Mary Kelly was a secret agent for the NKVD or KGB or so. People tend to look at a situation. Um, some often they look at a situation, and when they have no answers, instead of applying Occam's razor, they like these incredibly confabulated theories and God knows what. I mean, for a better example, you couldn't hope to 
look at anything like the JFK assassination. I mean, the bloke was shot in the head. But look how many theories about that. Oh, we can't have that. No, no, he's going to be shot by bloody Martians or something. <laughs> and uh, everything else. People come up with these incredible theories. But they're trying to, they're trying to put the clothes of modern days on people of those days. You know, oh, well, she must have been a secret police informer, or he was an undercover policeman. No, they didn't have bloody people like that in those days. You had narcs, of course you did. And, you know, if you sort of <coughs> were a police narc, you got a couple of quid and that was it. But you didn't have sort of undercover police officers to any great extent. Not in cases like this. Um, you did in other sort of political cases. Oh, my God. <laughs> okay, another question over here. Oh, there's a lady over there waving her hand. No, the gentleman there. Yeah, hang on, Mark, I'll be right with you. Okay. It's about his beer. He wants to know, what is it? <laughs> like the comedians from 1978. Um, <laughs> um, with regard to the Hutchinson statement um, and the, uh, the lighting evidence that you mm -hmm. provided, um, which incidentally I found very interesting, um, I'm just asking about the um, if you actually analysed um, the lower level lighting with regards to like uh, windows and yeah, ambient lighting. Termin terminology, ambient lighting. Did you look at anything to do with that as to how good um, that was? Ambient lighting in those days were, is not on a par with what it is today. And the reason I say that is if you go up any street after the shops had closed, 99% of them got their windows all full of blazing light. In those days, it didn't happen. You see, if you had a light in your shop or your pub, it was costing you money, and you didn't just leave it on to illuminate the street for no reason but at would all. would they still be actually... 2am, um, yeah, 2am was a bit late. I mean, if you look at Packer's shop and the grapes in there, he was packing up about, you know, sort of one o'clock. Um, I find it very similar, actually, to Hong Kong, when I was in Hong Kong in the 60s. And that was very similar, the lifestyle there, to Victorian London. And as much as it was a 24-hour lifestyle, but round about sort of 1 o'clock to 3 o'clock, it slowed down a bit. It didn't stop, but it slowed down a bit. And then it picked up about 4 or 5 o'clock. <laughs> but, yeah, you've got to remember, people, candles were expensive, lights were expensive. They aren't going to use them for no reason at all. And I, but with a street as well, I mean, that's quite a big street commercial. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, no, 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 no. No, no you'd, ha you'd have traffic, but you wouldn't have lights. <laughs> I mean, you'd have a small red light at the back if you were lucky, and perhaps a small white light at the front, but nothing, no, nothing left. Okay, another yep. question over Any here. Any Yep. Not really a question, um, just an anecdote. Um, about 20 years ago, I was at university in Nottingham, and uh, in my third year, uh, myself and some other people, we took the... Um, the lease on for a year on a house in Lace Street, and um, my, co my one of my housemates, who was more grown up than us, she took the responsibility for getting the keys cut. So she collected the keys from the landlord, and she went home to where she lived in Southampton, and um, she went to the key cutter. And as far as I remember. <clears throat> 
we had a sort of Yale lock and a sort of mortise lock as well yeah. on, the, on the back door, actually, which is way into the property. Um, so she went to the key cutter about 200 miles away from the university in which we were studying. And uh, she, got, she said, I need these keys cut. So she gave him the Yale key, and he cut the Yale key. And then she gave him the mortise lock key and said, I need this one cut as well. And he just reached into a box behind him and said, that'll do. And it did. It worked perfectly fine. That, that key worked perfectly fine. But he didn't cut it. He just grabbed it out of a box you, behind him, 200 miles away from the property yeah, in which it was used. You've got, you must remember, you've got locks and then you've got locks. The very cheap locks, all right? Basically, any key you can shove in there and if you can turn it, it will open it. I gather that's what but we were then, living yeah, in, yeah. But then you've got the sort of Bannon locks and locks of that nature. And um, you ain't going to... You know, open one of those. Yeah, it, it seemed to be more like it, it wasn't just a coincidence that there, yeah, happened, yeah. there happened to be a key in his box in Southampton yeah. that fitted my door in but, Nottingham. So. Yeah, don't forget, Abilene himself said at the inquest, he described the lock, it was a spring lock. Okay, that is actually the last question we have time for. Okay, well, uh, first, thank you very much, everyone, for your questions. And... Uh, I've had a really good evening tonight. It's been fascinating. Well, this is, this is my topic, so I, I, I have to say that. But can I have a big round of applause for Bob Hinton, please? Thank you. And that was Bob Hinton in conversation with Carl Kopak at the February 2019 meeting of the Whitechapel Society. We'd like to thank Mr. Hinton, Carl Kopak, Steve Ratty and the entire committee of the Whitechapel Society for making the release of this talk possible. For more information on the Whitechapel Society, please visit their website, whitechapelsociety.com, where you'll find out how to become a member, get information about their future meetings, purchase books and subscribe to their Whitechapel Society journal. We are a podcast sponsored and hosted by casebook.org where you'll find over 160 roundtable discussions, author interviews and conference presentations all about Jack the Ripper and Victorian crime. If you have any comments or questions about our podcasts, feel free to find us on the Casebook message boards or on Twitter and Facebook by searching for RipperCast. Ripper.